Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, thank you so much for songs that connect with what we believe and songs that kind of move us toward thinking about what we believe. And, and bigger than that, God, thank you for songs that are about what you have told us. May, may you use all of this, God, to bring us to where when the word is opened and preached, we are getting it. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, God, that you give us hearts that believe you. Speak to us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we are, that's where we're at, and that's where we've been now for quite some time. This is called the Mount of Olives Discourse. This is the longest sermon Jesus preached in the Gospel of Mark. It's the second longest sermon that we know about, the longest being the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But we're there today, and I am looking and hoping to finish uh, chapter 13 today with uh, uh, Jesus' Mount of Olives sermon. And it's all about uh, Jesus' return. We've talked about this now for a couple of weeks, and um, it's got us thinking about the big things. And I appreciate Joe so much picking songs that are about the return of Christ. We just sang about that, and now here we are going to look, look to his word. You know... Uh, the more and more I think about it, the more I'm aware that uh, preachers' sermons are often uh, analyzed quite a bit, right? There's a lot of scrutiny around a preacher and the way he is. I understand that. I guess it comes with the territory, but you know, sometimes they're too long and sometimes they're too short, and we all know if they're even one minute after noon or one minute before noon, everybody recognizes that. Um, you know, sometimes they're too, like, preachy, right? And sometimes it's too strong, and it's like he was getting on us. And y'all even are familiar with the phrase, he was stepping on our toes, right? And sometimes they're watered down, and people get mad if, we don't, if we're not hard enough or strong enough. And so it's possible for a sermon to be too strong, and it's possible for it to not be strong enough, right? And then sometimes they're just, it's too much like a classroom. It's too much like a lecture, just kind of walking through there and just kind of explaining it to us. And it looks like you're teaching more than preaching. And then, and then sometimes they're too they're too watered down and he's just not dressed up enough. He didn't have his tie on or maybe, maybe something like that. And we could go on and on with all of that. And Again, it comes with the territory. I guess I welcome all of that. But I, I want to say this. A lot of times preachers are criticized for being too serious. Some preachers are trying to save y'all, you might, you might hear. And I want you all to know, our passage today says that any given moment, your maker's going to bust through the sky, and we're going to have to deal with him. I can't imagine being too serious. The other day at our house, after I had given the kids some rules, you know, pick your belts up, you know where they go, these dirty socks shouldn't be on the floor, I had done all of that, and I had moved on to something else, and they were supposed to have done that, I came back through, and the belt and the dirty socks were still on the floor, and I don't remember what they were doing. So I got louder, and I got stronger, 
And I think I heard somebody say, all right, all right, calm down, we'll get it. And I said, well, until you get it, I'm getting louder and I'm getting stronger until all this stuff is put away. Y'all got to get the point. And I'm not sure if you want a preacher that's that way. Y'all don't want a preacher that's a bully, I know that. But I want y'all to know Jesus. I want you all to know God. And the Bible says that he's coming back to get those, listen to this, who are eagerly waiting for him. When I hear him say that he's coming back to get those who are eagerly waiting for him, you know what my thought is? There's a lot of people who aren't ready. There's a lot of people who aren't ready, and there are a lot of people who think they're ready that aren't ready. Now, sorting out, you know, were they saved, are they not saved, were they ever saved, did they lose their salvation, you know, sorting out all of that is, is quite a mess. I get that. That's a, that's a theological conundrum right there. I'll give that to you. But just hear this. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to rescue like this everybody who loves him and is waiting for him. And everybody that's not, he's going to judge and punish and send to hell. It's pretty serious, pretty heavy. So for all my, my, my preacher brothers that at times come on a little too strong or sermons get a little bit long or get a little deep in it, here, they're concerned about your soul and your eternity. It matters. Heaven's not that far away. And I say that a lot, and I say it at a lot of funerals, and when I say heaven's not that far away, y'all like that, I think. That means, praise the Lord, our salvation is near. But if heaven's not that far away, then at the same time, the alternative is not that far away for those who are not ready. Today's sermon from Mark, Mark chapter 13, beginning of verse 24, people get ready, Jesus is coming. Before I read there, I want to remind you that Jesus has told us that he's coming back. Just listen to these words from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, this is when Jesus ascended up and left earth. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We have a promise from Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, we have a promise from the angels that he's writing about in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus, just as he left, is coming back. And so it is the hope and the longing of all those who love him that our Lord is coming back to get us. And then, if you were to turn, and you don't have to turn there, but if you were to turn to the very end of our book, we are a people of the book. We have no other foundation. We have no other other truth that we build our entire lives on than the book of the word of God. And at the very last page, the very last chapter, Revelation 22, we have the words of our Lord and King and Master himself three times, Revelation 22.7, Revelation 22.12, and Revelation 22.20. Jesus says, behold, I 
am coming soon. These are promises and truths that the people of God cling to. Our Lord Jesus is a rescuer, and he is coming back to rescue us. This doctrine of the second coming of Christ ought to be one that not only we believe and hold tightly, but grips us. Our Lord Jesus is coming back to save us. Let's read Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives. Now this sermon goes from basically verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 37. It's a little bit longer if you were to look in Matthew's gospel and Matthew's account, which we have read in our, in our scripture readings and we've looked to each and every week. I want to remind you how this sermon comes about, though, because uh, it was not preached to the masses. It was preached privately to Jesus' disciples. Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 13, comes out of the temple. I've talked about that every single week. And he is showing that his glory has left the temple. The temple of God is now not about worship, and it is left desolate. Jesus is done with the temple, so to speak. And one of the disciples is in awe of the temple. It's so beautiful, he says. And Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Well, one of them, well, anyway, it will be torn down. It will not, well, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And there he is predicting, prophesying of the destruction of the temple. When Jesus says that, the disciples are kind of caught off guard. So in verse 3, sorry, verse 4, they ask him, tell us, when? When will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? See, that's the setting of this sermon. The question asked to them is when. That's the question. When is this going to happen? When is the world going to end? When is this destruction going to happen? When is your kingdom going to come? All of that stuff is being asked here by the disciples, and Jesus' response is 
an answer to that question, but as you've seen the past couple weeks and you see now, he doesn't really answer it. He just warns them. His immediate answer in verse five, after they ask when, Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. There's an urgency in the mouth of Jesus. And the rest of his sermon is building upon the urgency. Today, I want to give you these three points on the return of Christ. The return of Christ is needed. The return of Christ is near. And the return of Christ is not known. The return of Christ is needed. The return of Christ is near. And the return of Christ is not known. It's needed. The world is a mess. Things aren't right. Things aren't as they should be. Romans chapter eight says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth up into the present time. Not only so the creation, but we ourselves groan who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait, you hear that word? As we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Romans 8, hitting the nail on the head This is not our home. This is not what we expect uh, ultimately for things to be like. There is a greater hope. There is something we are waiting for. And our God in heaven, our Father in heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus will make it right soon and soon enough. The return of Christ is needed. Look back to the same chapter 13 and let me remind you what Jesus said in verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Surely you hear that and you think, that ain't good. I don't like the sound of that. That, that, That's so R-rated, in my opinion, that I'm a little bit nervous reading the message of Jesus knowing that there are young people in our midst. The message is what the message is. And the times are what the times are. And the seriousness of it cannot be overlooked. The return of Christ is needed. The first people God made, God gave them one rule. And it took a serpent to distract them. And when the serpent did, they listened to the devil rather than listened to God. And we're living in a world now, and it's always been this way, where we'll listen to about anybody else other than God. We're sure about some other things. We're not sure about God. 
We're sure about some other things, but we're not sure about what God's truth is. We're still wrestling with whether God is right or true. We hear these type of things all the time. The return of Christ is needed. But the reason why the return of Christ is needed is not so much because the world is a mess. Listen to me, I'm, I'm really not one of those preachers that likes to, to get on a, on, a, on a soapbox or ride down just how messed up the world is, at least I don't think that I am. But I do love to get on not so much how messed up the world is, but just how messed up you and I are. The Bible tells us that our hearts are wicked. It says that. We are sinners through and through. And until God's mercy by the bright light shines into the darkness of our hearts, we do not get any better. It is only by grace that God changes our hearts and lives and makes us to reflect him. The reason why the world is such a mess is because we are such a mess. I can attest to it in my own little individual life just with me. I can attest to it to my own life with the family that I have and the house that I live in. I can test, attest to it in our community, and I can attest to it in the world. The world's a mess because we're a mess, and we need God to fix that. That's why it is so baffling to me to see so much effort to try to convince us that we're good. There is so much effort done from every organization I know about how good we are. We need Christ to return and to take us to heaven and show us what good is. We need Christ to return to do away with evil. We need Christ to return so that he would rescue those who are suffering and put them into a place of peace and joy and eternal happiness. Turn over to chapter 8, just back a few chapters. If y'all remember chapter 8, it was strong on discipleship. You've got the confession of Peter there. But I want to show you this and see if you remember it. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, I mean, some of the biggest and best passages. Jesus has just predicted his death, burial, and resurrection to them, and they didn't get it. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus, if you remember. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus for telling them that he's going to die. Peter hated that thought so much that he rebuked him, and then Jesus rebuked Peter back by saying, Satan, get behind me. You might call Peter Jesus' main guy, his number one, his number one disciple. Jesus called him Satan. So if y'all don't like it that I'm saying that we're the ones messed up, just remember Jesus called Peter Satan. Okay. If he can call Peter Satan, he can certainly call me Satan. In chapter 8, verse 34, listen to this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Watered down or not, preachy, stepping on your toes or not, there is one type of following Christ and it is a denying everything else. If you're here today and you're a member and you've been baptized and you call me your pastor and you say you're a member of the church and you've got every other title and badge and uh, obituary tag that you want, but you do not follow Christ with the repentance of sins, you have have no assurance of going to heaven. Hear me on that. 
There is one call to follow Jesus, and it is take up your cross as he took up his cross and die as he died and follow him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and there is no kind of, sort of, maybe. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Crystal clear. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now look at verse 38. Remember, the Mount of Olives discourse in chapter 13 is about the return of Jesus, right? When will this happen? When is Jesus coming back? The return of Christ. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. When? When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In Jesus' mindset, in chapter 8, when the, in the subject of true discipleship and denying yourself and taking the cross and follow him, in the most serious of conversations about what it means to follow Christ, Jesus calls their generation, and he could say it to ours too, an adulterous and sinful generation, and he says, if you do not get away from that and embrace him and not be ashamed of him and be proud to be his child and be proud to his his follower, then when he comes back out of the sky, he too will be ashamed of you. It is a strong message that Jesus preaches. It is an adulterous and sinful generation. I think it always has been. As we're learning already in Mark 13, you can learn at the end, any time that Jesus is talking about the days or these days or the last days or the coming days or anything like that, it certainly seems that it applies to then and now. It certainly seems that it's talking about everything from Jesus' first time on earth to Jesus' second coming. That's what it seems like. And if it is an adulterous and sinful generation then we need him to come back. We need him to make things right. J.C. Ryle says, all of these things show us that this world is wearing out and needs a new and better dynasty. This world needs its rightful king, even Jesus. The return of Christ is needed. Another commentator says, this preview of the future ought not lure us to calculate when Christ will return nor to fear what will happen, but to know that he will come to claim his own. It should be your desire, even as we just heard prayed here today, that Christ is going to return, and we need him to return, and we want him to return. Are you hoping in that? The return of Christ is needed. But while the return of Christ is needed, turn back to chapter 13, it's also near. It's also near. Now, this is, this is interesting. In verse 24, he says, in those days after that tribulation, so after, after these hardships, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Uh, whatever that means, Jesus is talking about something huge. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, again gathering all of those who are his from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The beauty of the saving work of of Jesus is that when he comes back, 
The whole earth will see him, every eye will, and people from every single place will be coming to him. He'll be drawing them in. People from every country, people from every nation, people from every single language, people with every race or every color or every nationality, people from every single bit of our planet. When Christ comes back, he will be drawing them to himself. He will gather them up, it says. And it's near. Verse 28, he gives this little lesson of a fig tree, and he says that when you see the branches becoming tender and it starts to put out leaves, that means that you know that summer's near, and we know that, right? You can almost tell the time of year by the seasons. You can almost tell the time of year by looking at the trees, and you know that. And this is simply what he's saying. But he takes it a step further and says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, uses the word near at the very gates. And he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Y'all, this is one of the hard verses in this sermon. It sounds like he's talking about that generation. He says it's all gonna happen before that generation dies. Well, they died a long time ago. So what was he talking about? Either he's talking about something that happened inside their generation, which is a long time ago, or he's talking about something in the future because they're talking about seeing him coming And so this generation refers to something else. Well, I don't have an answer for you, but I know this. That generation saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and it was a fearful thing for them to turn to the Lord as Savior. And we're going to see the Lord come back. He's coming back for us, and we ought to be ready. And in this sermon, it looks like he is telling us both of these. But he's near. The Bible teaches us that it's near. Verse 29, you know that he is near. Verse 33, be on guard. Verse 33, keep awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly. Verse 37, stay awake. What's this sound like? It sounds like you better be ready. It's near. If I told you that next weekend... I needed you to come up to church and help me for about five minutes. You wouldn't even have to think about it or do anything tomorrow in regard to that. What we're going to do next Saturday would be so small and so minimal that what you do tomorrow or Tuesday or something like that would, would, would be insignificant. It wouldn't even matter. And I want you to see that the, the return of Jesus is something that is so near. It's something so urgent and so pressing that Jesus doesn't allow us to think of it as something later. Now, it's fascinating that this is what he does, but this is what he does. It could be any moment. It's near. And the people of God are to be, are to be those who understand it. Listen to me. And because we understand that Jesus puts that urgency on it, then it shapes and changes everything. This afternoon, if I was to find myself in a situation where I'm as mad or frustrated or angered as I could ever be, my heart and mind is to be controlled by the truth that Christ could come back any minute. So I don't lose it and cuss somebody out. I don't lose it and start beating my kids. I don't lose it and run out on my wife. 
Our Lord could come back any minute and call us to account that we're living for him. This truth of the return of Christ being near is to be the thing that causes us to understand everything else. Last night I was sitting down watching football. I had to go to the bathroom so bad. But I wouldn't get up. I thought Purdue was going to beat Louisville. I didn't want to miss a single play. And I kept thinking, I need to go to the bathroom. But I didn't want to get up. I didn't, I didn't want to miss it. And so I stayed there. And then I finally realized that you can pause TV now. So I just paused it, went to the bathroom, came back, problem solved. But you can't pause life. Our oldest son, JJ, will be 10 here in a couple months. 10. Some of y'all remember me when I was single. Now I've got a 10-year-old almost. Can't pause life. You can only get ready for it. You can only get ready for it. You can only say, now's the time. Now's the time. Christ is coming back at any moment, and we must be ready. Now listen to this. The Apostle Peter, you know, most of the New Testament is about the Apostle Paul. He's written 13 of the books, but Peter is also there, and there are two books written by Peter in the New Testament. And in 2 Peter, Peter's all about false teachers. He's all about suffering in the end, and he's all about giving you some truths that will help you through the suffering that comes in life. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, listen to what he says. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Wow. Is the Bible good or what? Peter writing 2,000 years ago says there's coming a day when the world is going to walk around and stick their chest out and say, you don't tell me how to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. Nobody tells me. And they're going to say, yeah, right, he's actually coming back to do something about it. Is that not the pompous, shameful attitude of our day? To tell somebody that they better get ready, Jesus is coming back, would get you stoned in 2017. It'll certainly get you fired and get you killed and get you everything else. And Peter says, people are gonna act like he ain't coming back. They're gonna mock the idea that he is coming back. And if you dare tell them that, they're gonna scoff at it. But our Lord says, I'm coming. I am coming. Y'all, the return of Christ is near. Did you hear what we read in Matthew 24 with Josh Womble read? See, I told you that the Matthew account's a little bit longer on the Mount of Olives discourse. Did you recognize what Womble read this morning in Matthew 24 that's not in Mark? That Jesus, when talking about his coming, said, you know what it's like? It's like the days of Noah. It's like the days of Noah. When people were doing their own thing. Having a good time. Getting married and just living it up. And then all of a sudden, it happened. 
y'all see all the rain and flood that happened on Houston? I bet I had at least four different people, and nobody really asked me for news advice, but I had four different people say, if we knew the storm was coming, how did they get flooded? You might have asked that question before, too. If you knew that it was coming, why were they still there? And then I saw that one video, that awesome video of the, the man and his son walking out. Did y'all see that one where he said, we ain't got anything, but we thank God. Did y'all see that? It was a little, cool little clip. The news guy asked him, so, so tell us what happened. He said, man, we were sitting in our living room. We live on the first floor, and they told us that a storm was coming, so we thought, all right. 45 minutes later, the water is rushing into our house. 45 minutes later after he heard about it, the water is rushing in. He said, so we didn't know what to do. So we went upstairs to the second floor. He said, but it didn't take any time for us to realize this isn't the right direction. Up's not right when it's raining. Get out of there. So we got out of there. We don't have anything left. It happens quick. In the days of Noah, it happened quicker than that. The flood, I think you know this, the flood in Houston is horrible and we grieve for it, but the, 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 the worldwide global flood that happened one time and one time only and will never happen again was horrible and horribly worse. And Jesus says that when he comes back, it will be like that. It will be like that. There are gonna be people saying, nah, not really. Well, I'm living it up, acting a fool, sinning boldly, today for myself, he's probably not going to come back right now. No, he could. And that's the warning. The return of Christ is near. It's needed because of how wrong the world is. It's near, meaning it can happen any day. It's coming. Lastly, the return of Christ is not known. What a truth. Verse 32 says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Does everybody see that? No one knows. And yet there's all this stuff about when, and no one knows. The question at the beginning of the chapter was, when will this be? No one knows. No one knows. If you ever hear anybody or you see a book or whatever telling you they know, just go back to 1332 of Mark. No one knows. The words of Jesus, no one knows. No one knows. Anybody ever asked you? No one knows. Yesterday I was riding in the car and I had a young man ask me, hey, you think the eclipse and this flood means that we're near the end? I said, I don't know. No one knows. Everybody's asking, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Look at this though. Nor the sun but only the Father. Now, Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. Jesus Christ is the one at the end of the gospel will say all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. There's not a single thing that happens outside the authority of Jesus. All authority. Except the return of Christ. For in Jesus' uh, incarnation, in, in the Son of God becoming human and taking on flesh and coming to earth, he humbled himself so humbly he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a, of a bondservant and, and, and became obedient to God even to the point of death. And so in this uh, uh, putting on human flesh, Christ has humbled himself to where here are some things he even does not know like this. He certainly could know if he needed to know or wanted to know, but he says here that he doesn't, and we're okay with that. 
Only the Father knows, it says in verse 32. The return of Christ is not known to anyone anywhere other than the ultimate mind of our Father in heaven. Only the Father knows. So we don't know. And if we don't know, then what should we know or what should we do? I want to read this quote to you from J.C. Ryle. It's outstanding. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this thought before. I had not, and I like it. There is deep wisdom and mercy in this intentional silence. No one knows. We have reason to thank God that the thing has been hidden from us. Uncertainty about the date of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectation and to preserve them from despondency. What a dreary prospect, listen to this, what a dreary prospect the early church would have had before it if it had known for certain that Christ would not return to earth for at least 1,500 more years, right? What a thought. What a quickening motive, listen to this. On the other hand, true Christians have perpetually had for a close walk with God. They have never known in any age that their master might not come suddenly to take account of his servants. This very uncertainty has supplied them with a reason for living always ready to meet him. And theology continues to look at this passage on when is Christ returning and we see it as a troubling puzzle that no one knows. And yet Ryle there says, no, this is brilliant wisdom from God. It is this very idea that the return of Christ is not known that has you and I on the edge of our seat, that has us outside like looking up, like could it be today? Except you and I know that we're not outside looking up. The being ready is not so much an outside looking to the sky, but it is a heart that is surrendered to the Lord Jesus. It's a knee that is bowed. It's a tongue that is confessing, oh Father, have mercy upon me. Oh God, forgive me of my sins. I struggle here, I struggle there. I'm, 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 I'm prideful, I'm, I'm, I'm judgmental toward people, God. There, there is a problem inside of me. Oh Lord, forgive me of my sins. I cling to the work of Jesus and I know that you love me and you will forgive me of my sins and my hope and my safety and everything is in you. This is what it means to have your eye bent toward the return of Christ, to have your heart ready for your Lord to come back and get you. And this is why God has not told us when it's going to happen. This is why the Father leaves it right there so that you and I today are on the edge of our very seat saying, come get us, Lord. The return of Christ is not known. R.C. Sproul says that Christ teaches that it will be a tragic disaster for anyone who is not ready when he returns. It will not be good. The thought of his return should be constantly in our minds, encouraging us in our present Christian service and teaching us to live ready to meet Christ at any time. Since we do not know when his return will be, we must be ready. We must stay awake. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be sleepy. We cannot be unprepared. We cannot make excuses. There will not be a second chance. We must be ready. Stay awake. Stay on guard. He says it over and over again. Verse verse 33, be on guard. Verse 33, be awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, therefore I say to you all, stay awake. It's serious. The Olivet Discourse, listen to this, concludes, this sermon does, on a note of mystery. 
When one reviews chapter 13 as a whole, this may seem disappointing. For the discourse began with a request for a sign, that is for special insight into the future, but we learn in conclusion that knowledge of the end exceeds no ability. Not only human and angelic no ability, but even the no ability of the Son of God. Its sudden consummation is hidden solely in the mystery of God. Listen to this. All the signs that have been given add up to one conclusion. The end cannot be prepared for. That is because the end is ultimately not a then, but a mysteriously present now. The end is not when is the end. The end is a now. The sole preparation for the end is watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. How do you know that you're ready for Jesus to come back? Because you are ready for him right now. And people walk around thinking, I don't need to get right with God yet. I hear it so often. I hear it so often. I hear it regularly here in Fairdale. I thank you probably too. You talk to somebody about church, you talk to somebody about their need for the Lord, and their answer is, not yet, maybe one day. The Bible teaches us too many times that there will come a day where it will be too late. We've been going to Ecuador now for several, several years, and I remember on one of our very first trips, it might have been our first ones, that we were flying and there were several connecting. I think we had two layovers to get there and we were supposed to get there something like nine or 10 and at night. And when we, when we go there, you know, it's just email correspondence with the, with the missionaries there and we had set it all up about a month out. And as the date got closer, we were about to go, I never heard, I never heard back from them. I never heard like, all right, you're gonna be here tomorrow, we'll pick you up. I never heard that. So we just went. And I, I had sent them an email telling them, telling them what time, but I'd never heard back. I don't know if they got it. Well, we hit a storm in Panama or something like that, and we got majorly delayed. And we were supposed to arrive in Quito, Ecuador at like 9 or 10 p.m. And we got delayed, and it was a mess. And I think it was 2 or maybe even 3 in the morning before we got there, a legit five or more hours after the time we were supposed to arrive. And now I'm even more nervous. I'm like, I had never heard back from them. My cell phone doesn't work here. I don't have their phone number. I have no idea what's going to happen when we get there. So we got there, and we're sleepy as can be. It's about 2 or 3 in the morning, and we get through there. We get our luggage, get through customs. We walk out, and there's our guy standing there waiting for us. And I thought, wow. Man, that's faithfulness, right? He was there. And I went and talked to him, and it was our... It was, uh, it's one of our good, good friends there, and here's what he said. I didn't know when y'all were coming. I had no idea. I just knew that you were coming. And so I just came here looking for you. And you know what? We didn't show up at 9, 10, 11, 12. We weren't there at 1 in the morning. We weren't there at 2. But he knew we coming and so he waited and he found us Jesus is coming and when he does I'm kidding you not there will be a whole group of people from every place that will say yes it's been a long wait but it's been worth it 
Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come back? One final question. Why is he coming back? Why is he coming back? Why is he coming again? Here's why. Because we are his. He gave his life for us. He's not sitting up there saying, you guys come on up if you want to. He's not saying, I'll leave a light on for you if y'all happen to want to stroll into heaven. He's coming back to gather his elect from all four corners of the earth. He's coming back to gather people who are dripped in blood, the blood of a holy son of God who died in their place. He's coming back to get the people that he purchased, his death for our death, his life for our life, his everything for us. He's coming back because greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for people. And if you want to know God and be safe with him forever in heaven, then you abandon everything else and you say, Jesus alone is who I trust in. Oh God, forgive me of my sins. God, fix my heart. God, cleanse me, wash me, make my clean. I have no other hope but you alone. And as soon as you can come back, please do. I'm here waiting. And that is what the return of Christ is about. We don't have the answers to win other than now. May you believe in Jesus. May you be saved. And if you're not, don't wait. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is coming back. It's needed. Thank you that it's near. And Father, thank you that even though we don't know when it is, we can be ready. Father, may we not be arrogant about how ready we are, how godly or upright we are, but may we be serious about we're ready because of the urgency and the seriousness in which we need you. Father, move this in our hearts now that we would embrace you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper at this time, and I'm going to ask the...